Hello and welcome to OPG Inspire. My name is Robert Roach, your host in Leading with Abundance, Organizational Development, and Finding Ways to Make a Better World. Today I had the opportunity to sit down with Brian Nurnberger, founder and president of Simply Smiles. This organization is a nonprofit that works to provide bright futures for impoverished children, their families, and their communities. Simply Smiles has had truly notable accomplishments, from building dozens of homes in Mexico, to donating over 100 tons of food annually, to providing scholarships for children to attend school and university in the United States. I found Brian's story to be as inspirational as the work he's overseeing. His unrelenting passion and dedication to his work is palpable, and I found myself ready to dedicate myself to his cause by the end of the interview. With that, my conversation with Brian Nurnberger. Okay, so we are live. Um, Brian, thank you so much for sitting down with me. Uh, Let's just start quickly. Tell us a bit about yourself. How did you end up becoming founder and president of Simply Smiles? Sure, yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, My name is Brian Nurnberger, and I am the founder and president, as you say, of Simply Smiles. And so the the abridged uh, version is that back in 2002, I was working as a professional mountain climber. Um, I was working for Eastern Mountain Sports as a guide and traveling the country mountain climbing, and um, I got injured. I was 24, but um, uh, my elbows were in a pretty bad way. My back was in a pretty bad way. And so I hatched a plan to recuperate. And that plan was to go to Mexico. And even though I didn't speak any Spanish, I wanted to go to Mexico and spend as much time as I could there, just traveling around, looking at mountains, not climbing, and recuperating so that I could go back to my life of being a mountain climber. And so I did that. I traveled Mexico in 2002 for a number of months, buses and walking and just exploring the length of Mexico, really. And when I was running out of space. When I was running out of Mexico, I was in the southernmost state, a place I'd never heard of called Oaxaca, Mexico. And in Oaxaca, I discovered um, not more mountains, not more peaks, but I discovered what changed the the course and direction of my life forever. I I stumbled upon uh, an orphanage. I knocked on the door and asked them if they wanted a volunteer, and they said yes, and I ended up staying for months um, helping to care for the kids there. And when I finally had to leave Mexico and come back to Connecticut, um, my my passion for mountain climbing had been shut off, and in its place was, I realized very quickly, was a passion for helping those kids. And as a 24-year-old without any you know uh, money or experience or contacts, I knew that I had the ability to make those kids smile and that that was virtuous and vital and that each of those smiles that anybody can create were building blocks to something bigger and longer term and that was uh, the beginnings of real change. And so I named the organization Simply Smiles and here we are 16 years later. So tell me a little bit about that. I've heard a bunch about a first bus trip. Uh, Tell me a little bit about uh, that experience of getting the first load of support down to this uh, orphanage. Sure, yeah, that was the that was a wild kind of like universe intervening kind of crazy um, occurrence. So after that first trip to the to the children's home in Mexico, I, I went back to Connecticut and started telling people about what I experienced there, and they started um, asking how they could help. And they gave me a little bit of money, and I, I took that money in an envelope, basically, back down to Mexico and gave it to the children's home. But I kept like 300 bucks um, to use for special stuff for the kids while I was visiting. 
And so that was the fall of 2003. And we decided that with that few hundred dollars, we would put all the kids in this 1970s era bus that they had down there. And there were 70 kids. We'd put them all in this bus and we'd drive them all the way up to the, the Zapotec ruins. It's called Monte Alban. And we would climb the pyramids and have this day and have a picnic um, with all the kids. And so we did that. We, we, we sputtered our way up the mountain and had a nice picnic. And on the way back, uh, the brakes went out on the bus. So we were coming down, I was driving, and we were coming down this windy road, and the brakes were just not working. You know, first gear, bumping it against the curb, the whole thing, trying not to, you know, go over the edge with all these kids. So I got back home, we survived, and I got back home, (laughs) and uh, since I'm here to tell the story, we survived, and I got back home, and I was telling some friends just in passing that story, and they're like, oh, why don't you get them a new bus? And so I did some investigation and getting a, a, a school bus, which are you know, easy to access here in the United States, in Mexico due to a, a number of you know, laws and uh, import rules. Are, they're not available, but there is a loophole where you can import them. So we bought a school bus in New Hampshire. We drove it to Connecticut, toured it around to different schools and churches and rotary clubs and anywhere we could go, filled it with donations, diapers, toys, vitamins, you name it, and uh, loaded it to the gills and drove it to uh, Texas. We got to Texas with all our permissions, and uh, the customs agents on the Mexican side wouldn't let us into the country. So we spent um, five plus months fighting at the border trying to get the bus into the country. And during that time, you know, I was like, well, uh, you know, why is this happening? We're just trying to do some good, you know, and we were just completely blocked. And um, but during that time, you know, this was 2003. We had a blog, which was pretty early for a blog. And we were getting some media coverage. And that blog was getting picked up by papers in Connecticut and in Texas and even in Mexico. And when we finally got the bus in um, and I came back to Connecticut, got it down to the orphanage. And when I came back to Connecticut, that media attention had given us enough kind of juice behind the organization to really get us started. And so it worked out for the getting stuck at the border worked out for the best, not just because the bus made it there, but also because it was a real, it was a real, people started to say, oh, I know you guys, you're the ones who brought the bus to Mexico. And that's really what got us going. So you've said of that trip at 24 with no money and no training, I realized I could have an impact. I had the ability to make a difference. So how in that process did you come to that realization why were these hurdles which you know five months at the border seems like an inescapable hurdle but how were they suddenly scalable to you at that time yeah, well, I knew, first of all, it was it was amazing to me that um, just as a 24-year-old, you know, kind of like shaggy-haired rock climber guy, you know, t- passionately sharing an experience and passionately sharing how you felt about something that people would respond in a generous way. And so, first of all, people in a very short amount of time gave what was a brand new organization, Simply Smiles, enough money to buy a bus and drive it to Mexico. They gave Simply Smiles enough stuff to fill a bus to the to the brim with with donations. And I started to realize that if you're honest and true and compassionate and passionate, and really that's what it boils down to, passionate about something, and you're able to articulate that, people are going to respond. And so you know, I had a lot of time to ruminate on that while we were sitting there, you know, at the border and, and arguing in, you know, in, in fledgling Spanish, arguing with, with customs folks. 
you know, that was really challenging and, and really hard. And, but at the same time, I was like, there's a lot of people behind this and there's a lot more people who can get behind this. And that inspired me and gave me the confidence to know that we can do something on a, on a scale in mm -hmm. this world. So let me ask you about that, that scale a little bit. You know, you, you've said about your, your organization on the website that it's impactful, sustainable, successful, and scalable. And so what does that mean to be scalable? How does that affect your plan for the next five years, the next 10 years, and how it affects a larger population than the one you're affecting right now? Sure. It's scalable because it's infinitely scalable, scalable because there are more people in this world in a position to help than there are people in need of help. And, and that statistic gives you enough bandwidth to change what needs to be changed on our planet. And so... Each individual has the capacity to make a difference. And so just based on the fact that there's more people who can help, then if everybody has the capacity to help one person, then we're good. <laughs> we're good to go. There's enough bandwidth. But, you know, you may have the capacity to help 20 people and I may have the capacity to help, you know, six. And so when we start adding up those numbers, we become very, very strong. And so our organization is centered around, the soul of it is centered around putting people in a position where they can become personally connected with those individuals in need of help and become, therefore, passionate about helping them. It's duplicating what happened to me as an injured rock climber. I wouldn't be nearly as, I wouldn't, I'm sure I wouldn't be engaged at all in, you know, uh, providing a bright futures for children who live in mountain villages in Mexico if I continued to be a mountain climber. But I went, I touched, I felt, I smelt, and I fell for those kids and became empowered to do something about it. And so there are some pretty high hurdles in starting your own organization at 24. But I was able, with a lot of help from a lot of good people, to, to surmount those hurdles. And we continue to surmount all the hurdles that come in our path to this day. But we'll surmount them for you, and you can attach yourself to Simply Smiles and have a profound impact in this world. Therefore, it's infinitely scalable. Well, at some point, you went from being a one-man show to being a two-person, three, four. You know, now you have an entire team performing that work on a grand scale. You know, what was that transition like? I imagine it would be difficult to delegate work that you're so personally passionate about. Yeah, for sure. I, I, you know, there's, there are moments. Um, there are moments in the course of anything, whether it be a, your life or a marriage or a business or an organization like Simply Smiles. And so I had what I call, and I remember it very clearly, I have what I, have what I call uh, a barstool moment. And I was sitting with my, uh, my cousin, and we were in Brooklyn, and we were talking, and we were at a bar on a bar stool. And I said to him, I said, Danny, I need to decide if I'm going to be what I was calling at that point a backpack charity or if I'm going to grow this. And what I meant by backpack charity was continue doing what I was doing, which was come back to the United States when I needed to fill the coffers tour around wherever they let me speak, fill the coffers, go back down to Mexico or wherever it may be, spend that money, implement the work, come back, fill the backpack, the coffers, take the backpack back down and just keep doing that. And, you know, in your 20s, that's fun and adventurous and it was effective as well. And people, that resonates with people. They like to know that, you know, in American giving, they like to know that if they hand you $25, that you're going to take that $25 directly and buy diapers, or whatever it may be. And so my decision to scale the organization as opposed to remaining that, that backpack charity 
hinged on trying to figure out how to make sure that we got bigger but stayed that small so that people believe that when they gave us their $25 donation, they believed and were confident that that donation was going to go and have the impact that they intended it to have. It sounds like as well that this is a part of what you describe in your methodology as a holistic approach where you know, you say that the poverty is complex and that you, you're trying to find a path as well to self-sufficiency. And having this complex, you know, this larger complex organization that's centered around this mission and this passion allows people to give money because they know that you are also trying to help these communities become self-sufficient. So how do you break down the complexity of poverty, you know, and how do you break it down into such a way that you can help people find self-sufficiency? Sure. Well, the first thing is to address the, that notion, that word holistic. And, you know, I kind of wish there were some more synonyms in the English language for holistic, because sometimes holistic can make it sound like, you know, we, uh, we lay hot stones on people or something <laughs> to heal them, you know, new agey or something like that. But what we mean by holistic is that there is a mythology in charitable work that doing one thing will tip the dominoes and everything will change. And by that, I mean, we go into a place, this mythology is we go into a place as organization X and we dig a well. And the well is virtuous. There's no getting around that. If they need that water, then that well is a virtuous act. But the mythology comes from that well is not going to consistently or reliably tip the dominoes and then that's going to change education and that's going to change housing and that's going to change the economy. It's going to help, but it's not going to tip those dominoes and change everything. And so I have lived personally for years at a time in very, very impoverished places, um, remote jungles, orphanages, Indian reservations. And it became abundantly clear to me and potentially through my um, you know, youth and lack of experience and naivete didn't cloud the, my vista of the realities. It became very clear to me that you would have to approach poverty on that in a holistic way. And you'd have to partner with a community, outline what the needs were, and together with that community, figure out how to address those needs. And when you do that, you change that community into a community in, in, in dire need of help, in dire need of change, into a community that has created an environment where leaders can emerge. And so if you go into a community and say, okay, here's the laundry list that we developed with you, and that, that's, that's paramount. It's a laundry list of needs that we developed together with the community, the people who live there, because that's the only way you're really going to know what the needs are. You can't look at it from our Fairfield County Vista. So once you develop that list and you start addressing them and you say, okay, we're going to triage them. It's houses first and it's education and it's medical care. And you go down the list. Eventually you've made an environment where kids and adults can come out of that place in a position to be change agents. And it circles back around to a phrase that's very, very important in this kind of work, which is self-determination. Poverty, more often than not, prevents an individual from self-determining what their today is, what their tomorrow is, what their lifetime is, and what their kid's lifetime is. So Simply Smiles, our role is to remove obstacles to allow communities to self-determine what that future is. And if they have a good roof over their head, that's a great start for self-determining what this evening will bring and what tomorrow will bring. And if they're educated and their children are educated and become worldly and have a vista of our world and what's possible, then that's a big step forward, too, in determining what their community is going to look like in the future. So it sounds like you're not just putting food on the table or giving diapers, but you're also attempting to 
build a community from within by changing the mentality that they're experiencing on a daily basis as well. Yeah. Would you say that? Yeah, I would say I would say that. I would say I think there's two things. I say one, you know, oftentimes the mentality is correct, but the hurdles are just too high for someone who's trying to keep warm or keep their kids fed to address the to address what they know it needs to be fixed. And so the mentality is more often than not correct. And that's where a respect for the people you're supporting, just because they may not own a pair of shoes, doesn't mean that they don't know what's best and what's needed for their community. They know better than I do every time, every single time. And so to, to get that perspective for them is vital. The second part of the response is that um, you're correct in, in, in saying that we're not just putting a plate of food in front of them. But we are putting a plate of food in front of them and then the next and the next and the next and the next and the next thing. Because that same tipping of the dominoes mythology can get you in trouble, too, if you only are concerned about the long-term solution. You have to go, you know, maybe the long-term solution is um, sustainable energy through solar panels in that village. That very well may be. But if you don't place stepping stones on a path to those solar panels then there's no way that that solar panel project is going to be effective. If they're still worrying about a belly full of worms that may block their child's intestine and kill them, or what they're going to eat this evening, then there's no way there's going to be space to have those solar panels be effective. And it goes all the way back to the core of the organization, which are moments and the small things like a smile. Those smiles on a child's face build trust with the parents. Those smiles between the adults and simply smiles build trust between the people who are going to be the active players in this change. So what does it mean for a smile to be a touchstone in this respect? So you have to measure. So if we're talking business or charity or whatever it may be, your college education through grades, you have to have some metric. Right. And so very often we have the metrics that everyone's thinking about that's listening to this. How many meals did they distribute? Okay, they distributed millions of meals. Great. How many houses did they build? Okay, they've built dozens of homes. Great. How many orphanages did they build? How many schools did they build? And the list goes on. There are metrics. But this is to truly change places. You need to have a generations long commitment to truly change places. And so you don't always have from day to day or hour to hour or minute to minute or month to month or whatever the interval is, you don't always have measurables because these are deeply seated problems that we're addressing that have been around for a very, very, very long time, especially when you're talking about Native Americans in this country. And so in between being able to say we built X number of houses and Y number of schools, how do you measure your impact? Well, a smile on a child's face or uh, a human being to human being conversation with a Lakota elder where everybody's laughing and hopeful for the future, the smiles on those people's faces, those are our touchstones each and every day knowing that we're going in the right direction. So let's talk about spreading these smiles. You know, you have said of benefit corporations that they build a sense of social responsibility and action into the DNA of the business in question. And so how have you built responsibility into Simply Smiles? But more importantly, how do we spread that awareness to other organizations that are possibly not even considering 
that kind of responsibility at this time. Sure. Yeah, we have to, it, it, it's a big challenge and, you know, uh, not, not to be a flag waver, but statistics are statistics. And, you know, the United States is incredibly, incredibly generous as, as a country, whether that be measured in dollars, which is measurable and provable fact or volunteer hours, there, you know, it's it's not. There are no comparisons with the amount of giving of time and money that happened in this country. However, we want um, quick fixes, you know, and our confidence, you know, is such that it can it can very easily and oftentimes slip into hubris. Like we can develop an app that's going to change poverty in the Sudan. You know, like if we can figure out how to get a ride from a stranger on your phone, then we can figure out how to get somebody who can't cook food without choking on smoke you know, a, a clean house. And, and, you know, and that, that's a dangerous, dangerous situation. And so the only way to do it is to, 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 to counteract that is to lead by example and help people understand that patience is necessary and that pace is paramount. You can't just implement change immediately because you happen to have, you know, a quarter million dollars in your bank account that you raised in a, at a New York City fundraiser and say, okay, I need to spend this money now because my donors are waiting to hear what the impact is. Those donors, those supporters need to understand that we're stewards of their support and that they need to trust us that we're going to use it in an appropriate way and in the, an appropriate time frame. And so the only way to, to, to make sure that that concept spreads is to exemplify it and to get more and more people to, um, to evangelize that. And so, again, it boils back down to people having formative experiences, which is why we've brought over 3,000 people to our program locations so that they can say, listen, yeah, I mean, housing is important on the reservation. And but Simply Smiles has to build those houses at an appropriate pace, because if the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation came along and said, you know, we'll give you a billion dollars. But with that billion dollars, you need to build 10,000 houses right now. We have to turn down that donation because a a construction project of 10,000 houses is going to be um, too much too soon and potentially destructive to the dignity, to the ownership, and the list goes on. And so people need to see it, how it works, and even if it's not uh, a six-week turnaround for how we use their support, once they see that it's done at an appropriate way and an appropriate pace, then they realize that it's being done right and being done with respect, and people start to talk about that, and that's how it spreads. Brian, this is clearly inspirational and important work. So how do, we, how do our listeners contribute, participate, help bring more smile, smiles to the world using it through your organization? Sure, absolutely. So we encourage anyone and everyone to volunteer with us. And so it's a big leap. It definitely is. I, you know, the easiest thing to do is get on our website, simplysmiles.org, and make a donation. And obviously, that is tremendous and necessary. So we obviously encourage anyone and everyone, if they're so moved, to do that. But we also um, offer complete transparency as to what we do, primarily through you can get on a plane and you can go this afternoon if you're so inclined and and see the work that we do meet the people who are impacted by it talk to the people about how we interact with them and um, develop a real relationship a real relationship with someone outside of your world and someone who through mutual respect and listening and communication can you can have a real a real impact on when you wield the organization that simply smiles is Brian, thank you so much for your time. This is great. Thanks, Rob. 
That was my interview with Brian Nurnberger, founder and president of Simply Smiles. To learn more about this organization and what you can do to contribute, head over to simplysmiles.org to get started. One element of my conversation with Brian that I loved was his methodology behind problem solving. In your work, you may encounter issues so vast and complex that there is seemingly nowhere to start. In Brian's case, he encountered deep systemic poverty, spanning wide populations with no infrastructure to make improvements. As Brian did, you must remember that there's no silver bullet for your problem, no quick fixes. Digging a well doesn't just fix an economy. Using patience, pace, and passion, you must develop a true relationship with those you mean to help. Recognize that your work will take time, so you must partner with and uncover the inherent strengths of the community in need. Building the community from within and cultivating a new generation of leaders is what will produce long-term positive change. You may one day have a bar stool moment in your life as Brian did. When you find the intersecting point in your life of what you love, what you're good at, and what the world needs, rise to that occasion. Even causing a single smile where there was none before may be reward enough. With that, this is Robert Roach, signing off. 